Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Um, while the offering is being received today, you're going to hear an original song. Um, this song was actually begun uh, in its genesis before I even announced to the staff uh, what I announced last week. And if you missed that uh, last week, it's that I'm going to be taking a brief sabbatical uh, starting uh, the Sunday after Easter, around April 19, April 20 or so, um, for study and for travel. And so that's taking effect. And I was challenging everyone last week as well what you're doing with your time and how you're handling things. And so hopefully this song will uh, speak to you, and I'll be keeping you informed as a congregation what my plans will be as those are, are continuing to unwind, all right? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and we are grateful. Everything we have, Lord, comes from you. And so, God, we ask right now that you would receive these tithes, just this portion that acknowledges you as our Lord, these offerings, these things that we give above and beyond that just to um, encourage others and to further your work. We ask, Lord, that they be used with wisdom and integrity for your purposes and that you'd open our ears to hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. When your ship is sinking, you have to look inside. How many times has the problem been? Nobody's but mine Ooh, I need a change I keep overloading I can't come back around My engine's been misfiring My heart's been stalling out I need to change So I Time is short 
a new series entitled Signs, and um, there's a collection of signs I've been having over probably the last year that I've been getting, and you're going to see a few of these over this next little season of time. So anyways, we're into this series. Uh, I'm going to start off by a division of the house. I'd like to ask uh, those of you who are um, cat lovers, would you raise your hand, please? If you're a cat lover, if you are a lover of felines, Okay. <laughs> Meow. Yeah, I know. I got gotcha. you. All right. All right. That's, I know you people, okay? If you are a dog person, raise your hand, okay? <laughs> Any armadillo? Uh, no, okay. Um, I have been a dog person. I, I appreciate cats. One of my favorite cats is Aslan, big cat. Um, but, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm all into that a bit, but, uh, but dogs definitely. To explain some of this, I have a few signs for that. Here's some of my favorite ones. Here's one. Beware of the dog. The cat is not trustworthy either. So that's my attempt to appease you cat people. This is why I do not like cats. One of the reasons why. If cats could text you back, they wouldn't. <laughs> cats treat you like a servant, okay? And that's one of the reasons I have issues with cats. Sometimes we get confused exactly what we're talking about, and that's part of this series trying to sort out even what's being discussed. No hipsters! Don't be coming in here with your hairy faces, your vegan diets, your tiny feet, and your sawdust bed. No, wait, hamsters. No hamsters. No hamsters. Okay, yeah. Let it sink for a while, okay? Uh, and then the last one that I showed you on the video clip is my all-time favorite. It's an actual sign. I don't know what they're trying to convey. I don't know how you get to where it's going, but obviously what we like is not just that or the 45-mile-per-hour. We like what's in between it, which says what? Good luck. Kind of feel that way sometimes, don't you? They were just kind of out there trying to sort our way through, trying to figure out what's what, where we're going, how things are handling. And in the midst of it, you know, uh, creation just seemed to be saying to us, you know, good luck on that whole deal. There's a trendy little acronym that's been making the rounds in managerial circles. V-U-C-A, VUCA. VUCA, which stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. 
the U.S. Army War College first introduced the college, or, 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 or introduced uh, this concept to describe the new realities after the Cold War ended. VUCA refers to the perfect storm of circumstances of life that sometimes hit individuals, families, and even churches. It's what happened when you face a string of complicated and ever-changing unknown unknowns. You don't know what you don't know sort of thing. The Harvard Review summed up VUCA as this. Hey, it's crazy out there. So just trying to sort out what's taking place, how we operate. Increasingly, we're in a society that's trying to sort out what's real and what's not real. We have fake news. We have uh, lying politicians. We have deep fake videos. I don't know if you've checked these out. Um, they have some, like, for example, of uh, uh, they've taken a video where Zuckerberg is talking about how they're trying to handle something, and they've dubbed it and worked it in such a way that it looks like he's claiming to be controlling the world and, and uh, all the things that we frankly suspect he's doing. Uh, they bring out in a certain way. Um, Nancy Pelosi appears drunk in a video. Um, other ones are presenting this or that, and they're fakes. They're complete fakes. It's getting scary anymore to try to determine what is reality and what isn't. In the midst of this, as we're trying to sort out the signposts around us and try to understand what exactly is taking place and what we're called to do and to be. There's one passage of scripture that was pointed out to me a friend, by a friend years ago that has always come to my mind. It's in 1 Chronicles 12.32. We've referenced it before. David's gathering a group of people to help him in the kingship. And from the tribe of Issachar, it says, men who, quote, understood the times and knew what Israel should do. And so it's talking about men who, and I would say now women, who understood the times, who realized what is taking place. We no longer have clarity on what is true or false, what is right or what is wrong. We can't even work out our basic uh, gender identity from biology or anything else any longer. We're that confused. How do we sort these issues out and handle ourselves in a world that is increasingly up for grabs where things that seem to be real are not? Things that seem to be true are no longer held as true. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is caught by two of the political parties. We've discussed this in the past, so you should be up to speed. There were several different political parties, and there's two of these, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are opposite sides of the fence, and they come to Jesus together. So it's Republicans and Democrats coming together on a common cause. They're completely at odds with each other, but they have a common agenda in this case, and it's to take down Jesus. They tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. This is really kind of weird because he'd already been healing people and uh, you know, feeding 4,000, all this kind of stuff. So what's going on here a bit? He replied to them this way. He said, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And the signs of the times is a unique phrase used only here in scripture. What's he saying? Let me paraphrase this first part before we go any further. When he's saying the evening comes, you say that it'll be fair weather, etc. What he's saying in essence is the old statement, Red sky at night, delight. Red sky in the morning, we all had the same first grade teacher. Isn't that great? Okay. This was a common phrase today. It's, it's not shocking to know that that phrase goes back millennia. 
In essence, what Jesus was saying here is you all know red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. When he says evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red in the morning. Today will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You guys all know these old statements. How is it that you can't sort out what's actually taking place around you? What the actual signs of the times are? Jesus is saying to them, you are in an amazing transitional moment and you do not even realize it. You can tell whether it's going to get stormy or not, but you can't even perceive the Son of God standing in front of you right now. You don't recognize what's taking place around you. Sometimes we think things will go on and on and on with just minor changes or adjustments, but basic things really won't change. In four decades' time, the ground they were standing on was going to be wiped out and leveled. In four decades of time, just a few years after, a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, Rome is going to tear down the entire temple area. All of Jerusalem is going to be devastated. And the nation of Israel will cease to exist for 2,000 years. And they're sitting here and pestering him for a sign. And he says, you're missing all this stuff. And then he talks about it. He says, a wicked and this incidentally, the signs of the times is if you plug it into a Google, you're going to end up with a lot of end time uh, ministries and things popping up because that's what the phrase relates to. It's only used here. It relates to what happens at the end of all time. The end of their time was coming and they weren't even tuned to it. How about us as a nation, as a people? Signs of the times. And he says, a wicked and adulterous generation. Wicked there means evil. An adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it. Adulterous generation is referencing not just people who would have been operating outside of marriage. It was being used as an illustration, and it's used throughout Scripture as an illustration. As the church, those of us who are followers of Christ, we are wedded. We are the bride, regardless of our sex. And Christ is our groom. We are wedded to him. And this illustration has been used throughout time of Israel and others, that if we're, if we're following after God, we are his bride. We're in a relationship. If we forsake that relationship and seek other gods or seek to go off on our own, we have in fact become an adulterous relationship. We have broken the covenant. We've broken relationship with him. And we're doing that which is wrong. And this is what he's talking about, this evil and this adulterous generation looking for something else other than God. They look for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. I just came from, from L.A. from a meeting a couple of weeks ago, and we were actually down in, uh, in South Central, and so I know how, how the sign of Jonah is. It's kind of like, okay. He's not talking about a gang sign. What he's talking about is this. Jonah is being told by God to go speak to um, a group of pretty wicked, nasty, mean people who had abused Israel, and because they'd abused Israel, he didn't want anything to do with them. So he goes the other direction. Storm comes up. They realize the only way they're going to solve it is tossing him overboard. He gets tossed overboard. Gigantic uh, um, fish of some type, whale, whatever comes along and swallows him whole. He's in that place for three days in the dark. Now, here's the thing that's funny to me. It's, this is just a good guideline for those of you that try to run away from God if he's telling you to do something. Think about this one, all right? You're going the other direction in a nice little ship. That's fine. It doesn't work. He ends up in the fish for three days. He's in this slimy gross. You know, the idea of Pinocchio sitting there with a wooden table and a little candle, that's not it, okay? It would have been slimy, gross, just how you even survive in that setting. And then he ends up being thrown up on the shores that's right near the city of Nineveh. So God takes him there. And you're going no matter what. 
I would, you'd be better off walking, okay, than ending up as, as fish vomit, okay, on the seashore. So just, that's one little side thought for you, okay? Totally free today. Um, and so why is Jesus referencing Jonah? Because he's saying the only sign you're going to have is a sign of Jonah. Then Jesus leaves him and walks away. What he's saying is this, the only sign you're going to have is when I die for three days, in the same way Jonah went into the belly of the fish and then was resurrected and came out, in the same way I'm going to die and three days later I'm going to come out. That's the only sign you're going to get. But by then it's going to be too late for most of you. That's my paraphrase, but by then it's going to be too late for most of you. Because you won't even accept even that alone. We're in a time period, we're just sorting out what's true and what's not true is a challenge. How do we figure out what's right and what's wrong? How do we hold to the truth that is there? It begins with cultivating a relationship with God. And some of us are sitting here and saying we've been in a relationship for a long time. When both my sons were born, I was in a relationship with them for several years before they recognized any, any aspect of that relationship. I spoke, they did not fully comprehend. Eventually they've grown up and, and as much as I miss those times when you walk into the house and they're rushing to say hi to you and to cuddle you, um, now it's more like, you know, we'll be home sometime around midnight or maybe four in the morning, whatever else. The relationship has changed. Now it's a deeper relationship. It's a shared relationship. There are two groups of people in this building right now. One who has never, ever really developed a relationship with God. And I'm speaking to you about that today. And then there are those of us, many in this room, who have accepted a relationship with God and pursued that, but nothing past the child stage. You want to understand what's going on in the world? You want to grasp what's taking place? You need to develop that relationship deeper. And we find some encouragement about this and direction in 1 Samuel chapter 3. How do we recognize when God is speaking to us? How do we develop out of baby talk into something deeper? There's a story in the Old Testament about a little kid named Samuel. And he was one who'd been given in service to a priest, an old priest named Eli. And the passage begins with a phrase like this. It says, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Rarely were they hearing the direct voice of God. So at one point in time, Eli and Samuel are sleeping, and the Lord calls to Samuel, and Samuel answers, here I am. But he doesn't grasp what's going on, so he runs to Eli, and he says, here I am, you called me. And Eli said, I didn't call you, go back and lie down. So he went and laid down, and again the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you, ca you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down, I'm trying to get some rest here, okay? I got a lot of stuff to do in the morning. Shut up, go to bed. Any parent will recognize this moment. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called to Samuel a third time. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then finally something clicks in Eli's mind. This old servant of the Lord, this elder in Christ, who says, The Lord is speaking to the boy. So Eli tells Samuel, You know what? Go lie down. But tune your ear. If he calls you, just say this, Speak, Lord. For your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. This was the beginning of his relationship with God. God was speaking to Samuel in a way, and he knew he was being addressed, but he didn't know that it was God. He actually had to learn how to recognize the voice of God. In other words, it's possible for God to speak to someone and the person to know something's going on, but, but 
they don't really know it's God. And I've had a number of friends that I've had over the years who after they've come to Christ, they've been able to go back and I don't know how many times they, I've had friends say, I knew he was talking to me here. I just didn't grasp what it was about, but I can see going back different points in time when he addressed me in my life. When we see those points in time, we begin to understand how they work. Then we begin to learn how to develop a relationship with God because we begin to see the pattern that is involved in those things. And so one of the things I would suggest to you is, is maybe you just get quiet at certain points and just say, Lord, speak to me. Maybe you begin to chart down or journal and, and note when those patterns, those times exist. But there's another component that was present in this moment with Samuel. I don't know if you tracked it. Samuel didn't clue into this by himself. He had the help of an elder. One of our light poles out here, um, a couple months back, somebody came and was practicing driving evidently, and they, they managed to discover one of our light poles um, and uh, got hung up on it. And I think it's been replaced since, if I'm right. And I noticed the other day, uh, coming to the parking lot, that um, the same driver must be over at Carpathia because um, uh, they have some pole that's been askewed and, and knocked loose. Um, I don't know how you guys learned to drive, and obviously some of us did not, or somebody didn't at least. Um, for me, as a 16-year-old, it was not another 16-year-old that taught me how to drive. It was an older person who understood the ways of the car, and they were the ones that instructed me. I love the fact that we are a multi-generational church, that we have really old people in this congregation, and we have really young people in this congregation. It wasn't just a driving instructor that taught me. It was my father that taught me how to drive at one point in time. He gave me the detailed aspects of it. He took me to the parking lot of Flint Northern High School when it was in the dead of winter with stacks of snow. He sat next to me in the car, and then he said, you handle the steering wheel and you handle the brake pedal. I'll handle the accelerator. And there was an ominous tone to that. <laughs> and so we're driving towards the, the end of the parking lot, and he suddenly goosed it and let it go. And I'm about to slide into a wall of snow, and I suddenly have to hit the brakes. And for those of you that don't realize, this was before ABS. We didn't need any stinking ABS in those days. We pumped the brakes the old-fashioned way. I just lost a whole generation right there. <laughs> If your ABS ever goes out on you, that's the actual automatically brake system, okay? You actually pump the brakes to achieve the same thing. And then we had to do what was called counter-steering. Now, almost all of you, except some of you deep southern types here, are all Michiganders. You know what I'm talking about, right? Counter-steer. Pump those brakes. Get out of the situation circumstance. And so my dad did that several times. Just accelerates, lets it go, and I've got a counter-steer, bring us to a brake before hitting something. I don't know what the idea was behind that other than to teach me that. But later, when I was in college, in a southern school, you would get snow. I mean, we're talking heavy snow. We're talking a full half inch, maybe quarter inch. Okay? And all the southern students, and I'm not making this up, you can ask my wife, she was in the same school. They would come to us, she's shaking her head right now. They would come to us as northerners and say, I have to get to work today. I have to get across town. Would you please drive me? And so we're like a shuttle service. <laughs> Why? Because nobody older ever took them in the snow and taught them to pump the brakes and to counter steer. They were children when it came to driving. 
We're a multi-generational church with older people and younger people. And that is a really good thing because it's that way oftentimes that we learn from one another about what is true and what's not. Sometimes the reality is, though, is we really don't want guidance. What we want is to be spared the anxiety that goes with freedom and choosing and being responsible. So you'd rather have myself or someone older or someone else to tell you what to do or some politician or some cult leader or something else. And God is not a convenient escape from the anxiety of choice and responsibility. God will not let you use him in that way. Part of God's will for your life is that you grow up, that you become a, a, a daughter and a son that can interact with him beyond childhood. But oftentimes we want to offload that responsibility. Some of you have probably heard stories, especially if you've been in management of a CEO who's taking on a new job and the outgoing CEO says to him, sometimes you're going to make wrong choices. You will. You're going to mess up. When that happens, I've prepared three envelopes for you. I left them in the top drawer of the desk, and the first time it happens, open, open number one, and so forth. So the first time it happens, um, uh, the guy messes up on an issue. He goes to the drawer. He opens up the envelope number one, and it reads, blame me. And so he does. He says, this is the old CEO's fault. I'm stuck with what he gave, da-da-da-da, uh, and it worked. Everyone says, Okay. Things go fine for a while, then he makes a second mistake, so he opens up envelope number two, and this time it reads, blame the board. Always a good option, okay? Not in our circumstance, though. We have a great team of people. Never once blame them for anything. He says, blame the board. He says, you know, the board's been in a mess. I've, I've inherited them. They're the problem. And everyone says, okay, that kind of makes sense. Things go fine for a while, then he makes his third uh, mistake, and so he opens up the third envelope, and the third envelope just reads, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> <laughs> and he realizes where he's going at that point in time. There's no way to learn except by choosing, and one writer puts it this way, no way to choose except by risking. No way to risk without failing sometimes. No way to fail without feeling pain. God does not offer guidance as a method of risk avoidance. God's guidance is not about you or me reducing our anxiety in the face of choice. It's about you becoming the person God intended you to be. And that means very often God is going to say to you that you choose. You be wise. You seek good counsel. You look for those older fathers or mothers in the faith. And you make those decisions. But the reality is that oftentimes the statement that's been made over the years that if people have a choice between freedom and security that they'll choose security every time is too often true. And that's how dictatorships are born. That we'd rather choose security over freedom as long as we have a good economy, as long as we're secure and, and maybe others are being gone after but nobody's going after us then we're okay and, and as we're prospering. We don't have to make tough calls. We were involved with Russia for five years, before communism, during uh, the fall of it, and afterwards. We had friends from Russia that would come here on occasion. And um, it was particularly startling. In one situation, a friend of mine that, that, that had someone that came over. And in Russia, when you were there under communism, everything was decided for you from cradle to grave. It was a complete secure setting. Um, it had cracks happening in it, and, and your choices were limited. You go into a, to a, a grocery store, and there were very few objects to choose from. 
This person came over to the United States, walked into one of our grocery stores, and was completely and utterly blown away. They were immediately caught with anxiety because they didn't know what to choose. There were so many options. This specific individual actually chose to go back to Russia and to be under the system at that time because they couldn't handle the idea of making selections and choices. God's not going to let you use him to abdicate freedom and responsibility. It's time that we grow up, teach others to do so. For the last 35 years, I've been in relationship with a group of friends in ministry. And for the, for the first number of years of that, we, there was a lot of talk about spiritual fathers and mothers that we would seek out for advice and that we needed to mentor us. And then the last five years now or so, we've become to realize that we are now supposed to be those spiritual fathers and mothers. And that's a very surprising thing for many of us. That we're supposed to be in that position now where we're supposed to be giving back to others. If you are um, someone that's young in Christ, then you need to understand, you need to learn. If you're someone old in Christ, you need to be giving back, and if you haven't learned already. Too many of us are oftentimes um, one-hour dry cleaners. And what I mean by that is this, and I've, I've had this direct experience. I went to a uh, uh, place years ago, one-hour dry cleaner store. And um, I said, I need this back. Uh, you know, it's, it's 12 o'clock. If I get it by 3 o'clock, that's fine, but I, I need it by 3. Um, their response to me was, I can get it to you like in three days. And I said, oh, wait a minute, I thought this was one hour dry cleaning. Oh, no, that's just the name of the store. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I, no, it's just, see, this is the way it is a lot with Christians as well, too. We don't actually do what Christ calls us to do. We are not actually who we're supposed to be in Christ. It's just the name that we carry. Let's take a quick snapshot real quick. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19 through 26, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, which is any sex outside marriage, period. And marriage only between a man and a woman. That's the scripture. Impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, getting drunk, getting drunk a little, getting drunk at all, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. They're, they're not really carrying the name of Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit, if, if we're in relationship, if we're hearing His voice, if, if we're under instruction, all these things are coming. He says the fruit of the Spirit's love. You want to discern? You want to know the signs of a Christian? Don't look at the sign that's over there that says Christian. Look at this stuff. I don't care how loud they pronounce it. Look at this stuff. Is there love? Is there joy? Listen to me, please understand this. If you see someone who's in dissension, selfish ambition, I don't care how much they say they're doing it for a good cause. Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Forbearance? Kindness? Are they kind? I'm a leader. I don't have time to be kind. All the more reason why you should be kind because people are following your example. Goodness, faithfulness, how about gentleness and self-control? Some of these things don't line up with me personally in the way I was wired or grew up to be. I've had to acquire these. They go contrary to our nature. 
Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions, desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, envying each other. Okay, I gotta go really quickly here because you guys are hungry. Okay, and that's really important. All right? So, 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read you two sections of Scripture. It's the same section of Scripture. I'm going to read the same one, only a different translation. And they're long, okay? Just kind of settle in, all right? Rest up. Okay, first one, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the sage has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Pharisees and Sadducees. And Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now there's more in this passage, but... but I know the attention span's short, so I'm going to jump right ahead to the full one, other translation, because I think it's clear to us, a little more raw. The message that points to Christ and the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way to salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works, and most powerfully, as it turns out, it is written, I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head. I'll expose so-called experts as crackpots. Yeah, you like that. All right. So where can we find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world and all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust him into the way of salvation. While Jews clamor for miraculous demonstrations and Greeks go in for philosophical wisdom, we go right on proclaiming Christ the crucified. Jews treat this like an anti-miracle and Greeks pass it off as absurd. But to those of us who are personally called by God himself, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up in one. Human wisdom is so tinny, so impotent next to the seeming absurdity of God. Human strength can't begin to compete with God's weakness. Okay, take a good look. Now, before we do this, really quickly, just take a moment. Look at the person on either side of you. Take a good look at whoever's there. Just take a come on, just check it out. You want to know who's behind you anyways. Around behind you, whatever. Take a good look, all right? Now we read this passage. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when God called you in this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best <laughs> among you. So glad you came to church today, aren't you? I like to get uplifted and encouraged and told that I'm not the best and the brightest. I'm just reading Bible, guys, all right? Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called in this life. I don't see many of the best, brightest and the best among you. Not many influential, and certainly there are brighter and best, and certainly there are influential, but they're not the greatest group among us. Not many who are from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses and chose those nobodies to expose the hollow, hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you or me can get by with blowing our own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, everything we have, 
Right thinking, right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet to God. I only have one more thing I want to toss in here as we conclude this. And I've told you before that I, uh, last week, that I have not repeated a message in 36 years, and that is absolutely true, outside of something I've taken outside the congregation when I've asked to speak elsewhere. But there are certain themes that come back, and you're going to hear one of those again here today because it's worth talking about and responding. You heard a song that was sung here earlier. And um, I don't want to mess you all up, but it's over here, right? It's in here. That's what I want. There's another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the waters holding back the seas. Um, I don't know if you know the, what the scripture that's drawing from on that. But it goes to a time period in Israel's history when they had been conquered. Their apostasy, their sin had gotten so great that the only way to address it was to bring them to their knees. Um, a number of the ones that were the brightest and the best were taken off to Babylon. And at one point in time, um, they're given different names and this is always just catches me, but let's not go there yet. And so these, these three young men, out of this whole hundreds of people that have been pulled aside, that were to be raised up uh, in this new economy, at one point in time, the king says, look, I'm going to put this golden statue in the middle of this large plain, and to prove my power and grace, when the music starts, all of you are to bow down and acknowledge this. Well, everyone, when the music starts, goes down, but in the distance, the king can see three young men still standing. They refuse to bow down, and they're brought to him. He says, what's the issue with this? Do you realize, didn't you get the notice, if you don't bow down, uh, that you're going to be executed, and it's by a horrible fashion in a furnace? And their statement to him was, we understood that, king, but we serve God. And even though we're not in our land anymore, and even though we're immersed in 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 a barbarous and foreign culture, We'll live within that culture. We'll operate within that culture, but we cannot bow down. And if that means our death, so be it. And hear the statement that always catches me on this. We believe that our God can rescue us. We believe that signs and wonders can follow, but they don't base it upon that. They said, even if he doesn't, though, we know he can, but for whatever sovereign reason, he may choose not. So even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down. Because it's not because of signs and wonders we follow our God, but because of who he is, because he alone is God. And so these three young men are tossed into the fire. And you think that'd be the end of the story other than anybody else learning a lesson from it. But we're told in the scripture that suddenly the king says, wait a minute, didn't we throw three people in there? Then why is there four? And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. And Christ himself shows up in in a pre-incarnation moment and is present with these young men and rescues. So there's another one standing in the fire. There's another one holding back the seas for Moses. We are not alone in this struggle to understand the reality of what's around us, but there's only one truth, and that is God. There's one only reality, and that is found in his scripture and in his word. And here's the part that always captures me. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stand in the difficult moment of time. They look for signs and wonders. They expect them. But even if not, they will still stand. But here's what catches me. Shadrach's name used to be Hananiah. Meshach's name used to be Mishael. And Abednego's name used to be Azariah. Hananiah meant Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael meant who is what God is. And Azariah meant Yahweh has helped 
Their names were soaked in worship of the true God, so much so that their enemies felt the need to rename them, to try to shed and take from them their identity. And so they were renamed names that were honoring foreign gods. Immersed in a culture of lies. Prisoners, even though they were given exalted positions, it would have been easy to forget, especially with the name change. That I'm now Shadrach and not Hananiah. It's easy in the culture that immerses us to lose track of what is real. Confusion reigns everywhere. But for those that are followers of Jesus Christ, we will never forget who we are called to serve and what our name truly is. And it's not just to be a sign over Christian without any real fruit. It's supposed to have depth and meaning. And it begins by seeking out God and saying, I'm your servant. I'm listening. Talk to me. Reading the letters that he wrote to you, seeking the counsel of ones older than you in the faith and not just being hung up with your own peers. I'm done. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these people gathered here today, your people, I include myself in this, Lord. That, God, we would, in this confusing time, seek the stability of your word, the truth of your spirit. That we'd learn your ways. That we'd set aside these things that, that defile and destroy, even though they are so natural to us. And that we begin to seek the, the peace, the kindness, the gentleness even if it means our loss, even if it means getting burned, that would seek those things because that's your nature. You are our Father. We are your children. And your DNA is to run through us. Lord, let us not just be seen as Christians, but let us actually be Christians, Lord. We look to you. At the end of the day, it's about trust. It's so whether you really trust God or not, whether you're going to lean into him or not, despite the situations and circumstances that are around you. Three times Samuel questioned what was going on, but it formed a pattern that taught him and became probably the most significant and most profound of the judges of Israel. In time, he became an old man. He took a young man named David off the fields watching sheep and he mentored and taught that young man who eventually became a king in Israel and gave us most of the Psalms that we have today. Seek him. In all the confusion that's around you, seek Christ first. Develop the relationship. Look for the patterns. Deepen. And appreciate those that are older than you value those who are younger than you. Father, we come before you this day. 
I pray, Lord, that as people would either stay and linger and consider these words, that you'd um, soak them in your spirit, that for those of us that have to leave and, and we have other responsibilities and things we need to take care of, God, as we would exit this place, that there'd be a, an element of thoughtfulness that would stir in conversations over lunch or, or through the week and that would change how we approach life. Let the power of your word and the, and the, and the strength of your Holy Spirit transform us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.